This program is brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. We're here to present the EFC Network Podcast. The Environmental Finance Center Network is a partnership of 12 centers serving 10 EPA regions. The EFCN provides training and technical assistance to small water and wastewater systems. This podcast series has been designed to help system personnel improve technical, managerial, and financial capacity of the utilities and communities they serve. Hello, today we're going to talk about NPDES permit limit development. It's just one phase of developing an NPDES permit, but it can be sort of complicated and people sometimes wonder how that happens. And generally there's three things that someone developing a permit is going to look at from a regulatory agency in order to develop that number or that permit limit that you see. And those things that they're going to look at are what are called technology-based limits. Uh, they're going to look at TMDL or total maximum daily load specified limits. And then they're going to look at the one that's probably the most complicated, which is the water quality-based limits. And we'll talk a little bit about the assumptions that they use when doing that. So let's jump in and, and say, you know, from the first, we're primarily going to be talking about the publicly owned treatment works, the POTWs or the municipal wastewater treatment plants. I'll make some mention of industrial uh, treatment plants too, so you get an idea. But again, the main focus is gonna be on those municipal wastewater treatment plants. So, as I said, the first thing somebody's going to look at is going to be the technology-based effluent limits. And you'll hear people sometimes refer to those as T-bells, right? technology-based effluent limits, T-B-E-L-S. So what T-bells are is they're a minimum level of effluent quality that can be attained from demonstrated technologies and so most of you may be aware, maybe you're not aware how your typical permit limits in a POTW are set, but it's based on what's called the secondary treatment rule, which is in uh, Title 40 of the Code of Federal Regulations. It's in Part 133. And basically what it does is it sets your limits for BOD or biochemical oxygen demand, total suspended solids, pH, and then percent removal of BOD and suspended solids. Now, initially, uh, when uh, the secondary treatment rule was proposed, uh, people had also thought about putting in ammonia and some type of bacteria uh, pathogen indicator like fecal coliform. But after everything got worked through, comments were made and accepted, it boiled down to where it was just the BOD, the TSS and pH that formed that and the percent removal for BOD and TSS that formed the secondary treatment rule. Now for industry, there are also these T-bells or technology-based effluent limits. And those are industry specific and those can be found at Title 40 of the Code of Federal regulations in parts 400 through about 471. And those go into very industry specific and what those industries can do and even subsets of industries 
and what their limits are. And some examples of those uh, that you might see are petroleum refining have specific limits, meat and poultry products from the meat processing industry, metal finishing, and there's a whole slew of them that you can look at, but that's really what uh, takes place for those industries. But getting back to the secondary treatment um, standards that uh, are set for the POTWs, there are secondary treatment and there's what's called equivalent to secondary treatment. We'll talk to, about both of those. The equivalent to secondary treatment can apply to trickling filters, that trickling filter technology, and to waste stabilization ponds, or which I think most people refer to as lagoons. But anyways, straight secondary treatment says you have a, a BOD of a, with a 30-day average of 30 milligrams per liter and seven-day average of 45 milligrams per liter. Uh, solids, also 30 milligrams per liter, and 45 milligrams per liter. Uh, pH of six to nine. Uh, standard units, and then a 30-day uh, average percent removal of 85% of BOD and total suspended solids. Now, some of you might also see what's called carbonaceous BOD in your permit or CBOD. And if CBOD is used, uh, kind of it subtracts out the nitrogen component then your BOD 30-day limits 25 milligrams per liter and your seven-day average is 40 milligrams per liter. Essentially, it just subtracts off five milligrams per liter from each of those limits. Now, on the equivalent to secondary treatment, uh, again, these uh, lagoons and trickling filters, it ups those limits for BOD and solids. It pushes those up to a monthly average of 45 milligrams per liter and a weekly average of 65 milligrams per liter uh, for both BOD and solids. Uh, pH is still held at six to nine, and then the percent removal for uh, BOD and solids is lowered to a 65% removal for those. Now, on lagoons, they can also have an alternate total suspended solids value. And there's a few conditions on that is that the lagoon has to be the primary treatment process. It can't just be uh, like a lagoon at the end of another process that uh, serves as just polishing of the effluent. And the lagoon cannot meet the equivalent secondary limit as is. It needs a boost. And, you know, that's typically for people with lagoon systems understand that they grow algae, which really isn't quite the kind of solids that were envisioned in the secondary treatment rule. Talking more about biological solids there. And so uh, EPA can approve alternate total suspended solids uh, dependent on the state. So probably back in the 70s or 80s, uh, whatever state you might be in, had to submit a study to EPA showing what their typical uh, solids discharge was from lagoons. And those values that EPA approved for different states are anywhere from 37 milligrams per liter to 120 milligrams per liter, and that's dependent on the state. 
So for industry, these non-POTWs are industry, it's really based on what a typical industry can achieve using a particular technology. And the industry-specific uh, guidelines are called effluent guidelines, you'll hear referred to as ELGs. And those are based on really an in-depth engineering and economic, where they took into account economics as they were studying those from industry and the typical treatment that was done at those industries. And these technical development documents, if you ever want to dive in and read about a particular industry and how it operates and what type of uh, wastewater treatment is typically applied, they are a really great document to read up on those and find out something about the industry. I will say some of them are a little dated, uh, but they're still pretty good information. And the thing now about, you remember POTW is everything was just, well, milligrams per liter or percent removal. These effluent guidelines for industries can be expressed in hundreds of different ways. And I'll give you a couple of examples. It's like in the petroleum industry, some of the uh, limits are expressed as the maximum kilograms per day of a pollutant per a thousand cubic meters of feedstock. So how much crude oil is running through that refinery in a day, you take that and then they set the allowance for the number of kilograms of a particular pollutant that can be there. Uh, for the meat processing industry, uh, some of them are expressed as a daily maximum pounds per thousand pounds of live weight kill, or LWK. So, how many pounds of beef or pork or poultry are you processing in a day? And based on those number of pounds, you're allowed so many pounds of pollutant to be uh, discharged. So you really need to know about a particular industry and how it operates in order to calculate what these technology-based limits are for that particular industry. So the second one I mentioned are TMDL-based limits or total maximum daily load-based limits. Um, some people would say those probably fall under the water quality and while they are water quality derived, uh, they're different than what I would call a water quality-based effluent limit. So I'm gonna hold them out separately. And it may not be that in every state, every water body, every discharger has a TMDL that they have to comply with. The so TMDLs happen when states are required to develop lists of their impaired waters. And that's under section 303D of the Clean Water Act, if you ever wanna read up on that. So these impaired waters are waters that don't meet the water quality standards that states have set for them, even after all of their point sources or these wastewater treatment plants uh, do what they're supposed to do. You set the limits for them and it's still out there, but they, the stream still doesn't meet the quality that the state you know, decides that they should have. And so on a priority basis, the states are required to develop these TMDL documents and come up with ways to try to set effluent limits and limits and, well, they can't be limits, but they're, they're goals essentially for non-point source runoff. 
to try to bring that water body into compliance with the, the water quality standard. So TMDLs identify what are called waste load allocations for an impairing pollutant. Waste load allocations, you'll awfully hear the, the jargon, people refer to them as WLAs, waste load allocations. And waste load allocations get established uh, levels of pollutants that are given to a point source. And so uh, if there's a, a waste load allocation established in one of these TMDL documents for a specific point source for whatever pollutant, that point source has to meet that waste load allocation they've been given. And you can have multiple of these waste load allocations. Uh, it could be one for each point source that there, if you have in the same stream segment, you have multiple cities that are discharging, each one of them uh, will have their own waste load that they have to meet. Now I mentioned before non-point sources and that's typically runoff that's uh, stormwater runoff that's not regulated uh, as a point source, uh, these MS4 permits as they're referred to from larger cities, and it tends to be a lot of agricultural rural runoff. And so those non-point sources are given what are called load allocations or LAs. So remember that the, the wastewater treatment plants get waste load allocations, the non-point sources are given load allocations. The TMBL will also incorporate what's called the margin of safety. And that's really good to have because a TMDL is nothing but a big model on a stream. And you're kind of saying, well, my model tells me that if I reduce uh, the, the waste loads from the point sources and I reduce the loads from the, the non-point source runoff, that I'm going to uh, hopefully achieve uh, my uh, water quality criterion in stream that I'm shooting for. And so because all of that's modeled, there's also a margin of safety thrown in there just to, because models aren't precise. They're not just exact. Uh, a lot goes on out there in the open environment. So you'll throw in that margin of safety. So what you really have happen is then you add up all the waste load allocations and the load allocations and the margin of safety. And if that value is achieved, then the, the hope or the calculation is that the stream will comply with the state's water quality standard, that the water quality criterion will be met in that receiving stream. And if that happens, then the water will no longer be impaired. So uh, TMDLs can be a little tricky to understand, I think, sometimes. Uh, there were some court cases where the court said it's called a total maximum daily load. So the load has to be expressed as a load, which is generally mass-based, you know, a weight, so many pounds per day, so many kilograms per day. So when you see a, a permit, particularly for a, a POTW or one of these municipal wastewater dischargers, you know, they're always given as primarily in concentrations. Again, your 30 milligrams per liter of BOD, 45 milligrams per liter of solid. 
So somehow you've got to translate that TMDL, that load into, well, what's the ma daily maximum concentration or load? What would be the weekly average concentration or load? And what would be the monthly average concentration or load? And so the best way to do that, if you're ever, you know, kind of in that position is to talk to the regulatory agency who developed that TMDL. And they are really the best ones to interpret how that maximum daily load gets interpreted into uh, a weekly and a monthly load or concentration. So it's really incumbent upon people to work with those regulatory agencies to really understand how those things that are based on the stream segment apply back into a permit and set concentrations. So that's number two. So we now have a technology-based limit and we have a TMDL-based limit. You know, possibly, again, the TMDLs aren't gonna be there for every water body, but they'll be there for some. And so that leads us to the last one, which are water quality-based effluent limits. And you'll hear people refer to those a lot of times as QBELs or WQBELs, water quality-based effluent limit, WQBEL. And these, uh, to be honest with you, drive uh, most of the permit limits uh, in most states. Um, they, they tend to be a little more stringent often than the technology-based limits. Uh, a lot of times they will match up, you know, one-to-one um, -one with the TMDL limits, but not necessarily. And so there's a lot that goes into calculating a water quality-based effluent limit. So what the person developing those limits has to do is they've got to, you know, identify what are called all the designated uses of a receiving water and uh, state that's part of their water quality standards that the states develop. Again, that's one part of the, the federal law, the Clean Water Act, that they said states, you are in charge of developing water quality standards for your state. EPA gets to approve them, but the state is given charge of developing them. And so states might have different uses for criteria and you always select the most stringent. And some of the uses you're gonna see out there is probably everyone will have an aquatic life support. Uh, it may not be called that exactly, but people tend to look at aquatic life support. There will be recreation. Some you'll see recreation in the water or on the water. Those may have some different standards depending on that. Uh, you could have drinking water, you could have agricultural watering, um, you know, and on down the line. And each of those designated uses may have a different criterion associated with them. Uh, so, for instance, uh, where I am at in Kansas, there is a drinking water standard, uh, drinking water use criterion for chloride, that's 250 milligrams per liter. There's an aquatic life support value of 860 milligrams per liter. 
So if I would look at a stream or I was looking at a, a discharge into it and it had both a drinking water use assigned and an aquatic life support use assigned, I would choose the most stringent, which in this case would be 250 milligrams per liter. Now, most of these uh, water quality-based effluent limits have uh, what's called an acute value or a chronic value. And the acute values, those are lethality or you kill organisms over a pretty short time frame, you know, a day or less typically. And that tends to be a bigger value because, you know, the, you're going to put out more out there and it has to be pretty high in order to have that immediate killing effect, if you will. Uh, then the other one is the chronic value. And what chronic does is not necessarily look at lethality or killing an organism, but it looks at reproductive and health effects that happen over a longer time frame. So they're actually a much smaller value, tends to be your monthly type averages. But when we talk about reproductive and health effects, those are, uh, you know, those can be replicated in the lab doing a whole effluent toxicity test is that on reproductive impacts, it means that an organism produces fewer offspring, fewer young compared to the same type of organism that's just grown in lab water and isn't impacted by the pollutants and effluent. Health effects can mean that some are stunted in growth uh, if they were compared to the same organism uh, in grown in just lab water with no uh, uh, pollutant in there, they may grow larger, maybe healthier than the others. So those WQ bells will typically then, if it's for aquatic life, have both those acute and chronic values that'll be used. Now, uh, the WQ bells, their whole point is to ensure the water quality criterion that value the state publishes that says, hey, if you don't exceed this number, the organisms ought to be healthy, okay? And uh, that as long as those aren't exceeded downstream of the discharger, then everything should work. So how do you do that? Well, I wish I could show you a picture I have, but since this is just audio, I can't. But uh, what you have to think of is, you know, you have a wastewater treatment plant that's discharging. Now, what do we know about where it's discharging? You know, well, we know there's an upstream flow above the treatment plant, and we hopefully know the concentration of whatever pollutant is in the, the river upstream. We know downstream what the flow is, which is should be the upstream flow plus whatever the, the point source, that discharger added to the stream. And we know the downstream concentration is we don't want to exceed the state's water quality criterion. And then with that discharger, we know what its flow is. So we've got all the variables taken care of, but one, and that's the concentration of the discharge from the treatment plant. So if you rearrange your, your equation there, you can then calculate what that concentration is from the treatment plant that needs to be um, uh, maintained in order to produce the quality of the water downstream that won't impair organisms. 
But it's sometimes not quite that easy because uh, different states have different rules. And so first off, you look at, well, what flow do you use upstream? You know, if it rains, there's a lot of flow. If you're in a drought, there isn't much flow. So how do you know which flow to use in stream? Well, the, the permitting rules try to be very conservative. And so what they say is you use a statistically developed low flow value that you base your, your permit limit on. What you'll often see is one called a 7Q10 flow, and that's the lowest seven day flow in a 10 year period. And that's hydrologically based. Uh, for ammonia, you'll often see the 30Q10 because the ammonia criterion are based on a 30 day exposure. So you'll often see that. What would probably be the best way to do it, and some states will, I don't think too many, but use what's called the 4B3. And that's the four day average flow that occurs once every three years. And that's biologically based. And that tries to estimate the, the actual biological exposure to aquatic life. So you've selected that flow and it's a low flow. So it's conservative. It's, you know, should only happen, you know, once every 10 years, hopefully, you know, if it's that 7Q10. Then what some states will do, you may have heard before of a mixing zone. And that's the state says, well, we've got this upstream critical low flow, but because we want the organisms to maybe be able to pass around that area and not get exposed to that pollutant, we're going to put what's called a mixing zone. And you'll often see states uh, put in a mixing zone that says, well, you you uh, can't have any more than 25% of the upstream flow as a mixing zone. And that applies to your chronic criteria. So for example, if you had 10 cubic feet per second of flow uh, upstream of a discharger and the mixing zone was 25%, uh, the upstream flow that's used in the, in the calculation is 10 times 0.25 or 25%, and you get 2.5% of that flow to actually calculate that limit with. Okay, so we've got low flow, uh, which is conservative. We've got mixing zone, which makes it further restrictive and more conservative on the limit. And then within the mixing zone for acute criteria, you'll often see states have what's called a zone of initial dilution or a ZID, you'll often hear it called. And uh, what I see most often is that that's a, about 10% of the overall mixing zone or 2.5% uh, of the upstream flow that would be allowed for that acute criteria. And that makes sense because remember that the acute criteria, you know, if that's exceeded, that can kill organisms. And our whole goal is to uh, preserve aquatic life in that stream. So, you know, we certainly don't want to be killing them. Um, so that kind of gives you the, the complete information you need for computation of the uh, WQBEL to, to support that uh, water quality standard. There's some other things, and there's a webinar we've done that uh, will, if it's not out already, will soon be out on the Environmental Finance Center websites 
that will uh, get a lot more in depth on the whole permitting uh, process because there are still some things that happen that I'm not going to talk about in detail today that even after you've completed all those uh, uh, calculations for these water quality based effluent limits, they may even be restricted a little bit more because of the variability in effluent. And that's something we'll talk, we, we, we have talked about in that webcast if you're interested in getting into a little bit more detail. But uh, for permit limit development, we can kind of summarize it by saying that we have computed and looked at a technology-based effluent limit. We computed a TMDL-based limit if there is a total maximum daily load associated for the particular stream segment you're discharging into. Uh, there's a, uh, a water quality based effluent limit that we've computed. And so what do we do now? We've got these three things we've computed, three numbers we computed. Well, I'm betting that you've guessed by now is we pick the most stringent of those three. And that becomes your permit limit. But <laughs> there could be more. And again, it's discussed on the webinar we've done. Uh, get into things uh, such as anti-degradation, anti-backsliding, reasonable potential, uh, a few other things uh, that are a little more down into the weeds on how you would come up with that final uh, permit limit. But if you if you think about it, you know, the key that I want to get across here today is that you have three ways that you have to look, uh, three places you have, you find numbers uh, to look at permit limits. And those are technology-based limits, TMDL-based limits, and water quality-based limits. And after you compute all of those, you take the most stringent. And so with that, uh, that's what we've got today. I appreciate your listening in. And hopefully if you want more detail, you'll um, try to find that webinar and, and see the entire development process for an NPDES permit. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of the EFC Network Podcast brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. Be sure to stay tuned for future EFC Network podcast episodes.